everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Vetfolio Voice. In this episode, sponsored by DECRA, I'm joined by Dr. Cindy Bauer to discuss ear cytologies. So I'll be honest, when I first heard that we were going to discuss ear cytologies, my reaction was, really? I do these every day. I've probably looked at thousands of them. What do I need to learn about ear cytologies? And let me tell you the answer. A lot way more than I ever expected, and I won't ruin it for you, but I will tell you that if you think you know most things about ear cytologies, you really might be surprised by this episode. Dr. Bauer attended Auburn University's College of Veterinary Medicine, where she graduated with honors and received her DVM degree in 2005. After completing a rotating internship in small animal medicine and surgery at Veterinary Specialists of South Florida, she was accepted into a four-year dermatology residency and master's program at the University of Georgia. She completed her residency in July 2010, also earning a master's of science specializing in veterinary dermatopathology. She's board certified in veterinary dermatology and a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Dermatology. She's a published author about her research, which used only client-owned, volunteered pets to help improve the use of skin testing in animals who suffer from environmental allergies. In 2012, she joined St. Matthews University College of Veterinary Medicine as a visiting professor of veterinary dermatology. Dr. Bauer's clinical interests are many, including infectious skin diseases, ear diseases of dogs and cats, and allergic skin diseases. She now resides in the Greenville area where she lives with her husband and their three cats. Let's go ahead and get into our episode. All right, I'm here today talking with Dr. Cindy Bauer. We're going to talk about ear cytologies, which, you know, as a general practitioner, I'm very excited to get more information on doing ear cytologies. And Dr. Bauer, I have to say, it really surprised me when you and I first spoke to kind of get an idea of what we wanted to talk about on this episode. I was really surprised how much I didn't know about ear cytologies. Yeah, I think most of us come out of school having a basic understanding and an idea of what we think we should be doing. And then it's really a practice makes perfect sort of thing. And the more you do them, the more you learn sort of what works and what doesn't work with your patients. And they've they've done some studies to look at kind of, is there a best way to do cytologies? Is there not a best way? And ultimately, it's just whatever works best in your own hands. So let's talk about that a little bit further. We've talked about, you know, we've all heard of different staining techniques and I've worked with different doctors who stain things differently. When it comes to staining in ear cytology, how do you stain it? And is there kind of a correct way to do it? So what I primarily do is do the classic diff quick or dip quick. And we do use all three of the stations, the like blue fixative, then the pink, and then the purple. Depending on where you were trained at what veterinary school, there are some that will just use the purple stain or counter stain at the end, which is appropriate. It's going to stain the sample just fine, but it just comes down to what your preferences are. I like all three of the stains because I think it adds a lot of contrast to the sample when you are evaluating it. So if you are new to cytology or if you don't have a lot of experience or you're a little rusty, then having that gradient of pinks into purples so that you can differentiate cells from bacteria, from yeast versus everything just looking dark purple is 
been very helpful when I train students or even colleagues or employees on how to read cytologies. And some of the things that they have looked at is when we are doing staining, is it necessary to do all three of the staining stations? Should you just do the purple? Does the fixative affect your stain and wipe some of it off? And realistically, what they found when they evaluated different samples is statistically, there's no difference. Really, the outcome of reading the sample was the same. So it's what you're most comfortable with reading those samples in that moment. And, you know, kind of like you're talking about coming out of school and maybe not having a huge comfort level with exactly what works best for you. I know for me, when I don't have a huge comfort level with something, I might drag my feet a little bit on, you know, do I want to do this test? So why is doing a cytology so important when we're evaluating ears? a great question. And I can tell you that hands down, most dermatologists, when we're trying to determine what treatment to utilize for our otitis cases, we use cytology primarily combined with a visual exam. So it's important to know what kind of infection is in the external ear canal, but also is the skin of the ear canal intact? Is it erosive? Is there a massive amount of debris that you're trying to fight through? And so the visual exam is as important as the cytology, but the cytology is the number one thing that we use to determine what treatments we're going to put in that ear. And so a lot of questions that come up, which you and I spoke about before, was culturing of the external ear canal. And we can definitely chat more about that. But the basic reason why we don't tend to utilize that for the external ear canal is that cultures are for oral medications, what we should be giving systemically based on the sensitivity pattern that we see. And so many times we don't utilize oral medications to treat an external ear canal because they don't penetrate through that canal and treat that infection there. That's why topicals are really crucial. Cultures also don't give us good information about what to use topically because the concentrations of the antimicrobials in our topical solutions by far exceed what a culture evaluates. So we can't really utilize a culture to tell us what to do topically. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of information out there. So we can use empirical data, which tells us you know, fluoroquinolones are likely going to kill this rod infection that we have. And we know because the concentration in a lot of, let's say, batrol-containing drops is really high, it should treat it. So what usually impedes our ability to treat an infection is other perpetuating problems in the ear canal, not necessarily the drops you're choosing. You mentioned that visual examination, you know, severe ulceration, tons of debris that we're fighting through. What about when we're talking about sample collection, what are some of the barriers we should watch out for when we're collecting a sample? Those are two of the big ones I'm thinking of, but are there others that we need to be aware of? And, you know, kind of how do we deal with those to get the best, most representative sample on our patient? I think that the number one barrier that we usually run into when we're trying to obtain samples or even just get a visual exam from our patients is discomfort or pain. A lot of infected ear canals are very swollen, but it is still important to try to get that sample and do your visual exam. And potentially sometimes if they need pain control and sedation to do that, that might be worthwhile. What we try to do when we collect a sample is to utilize, let's say, a cotton-tipped applicator, and you want to get down to the gel 
junction of the two canals. So where the vertical canal meets the horizontal canal to go to that level to just try to get a representative sample. In some ears, though, the debris and the infectious material is at the very deep end of the canal where we get close to the eardrum. Those cotton tip applicators can be a little painful. They're not as comfortable as like a classic Q-tip. If you've ever put one in your ear, you might realize that. So sometimes in very sensitive pets, when we're trying to collect a sample, we can actually pass a very soft like red rubber catheter close to where the eardrum is connected to a syringe and aspirate some of the infected solution. That way, if the dog is going to want to move or shake his head, there's less risk of damaging in the eardrum if it's there. Because in most ear canals, when you have a lot of inflammation and infection, the eardrums can become friable and they're much more easy to damage. A really healthy eardrum, it's very actually difficult to puncture a hole in it. So if you create a hole in an eardrum, it's probably because it was already very diseased. But those are a couple of the ways, other than a cotton-tipped applicator, trying to aspirate some material or solution to get difficult to reach samples. We utilize that technique a lot other than just sedation. But what is also really helpful is making sure you have enough hands to hold the dog. So even in a normal ear canal, if you are trying to do a visual exam and that dog suddenly jerks his head uh, side to side or front to back, it will be uncomfortable if that very stiff cone is in there. So I find trying to look in an ear alone or even just with the owner's help is impossible. There's no way to get a good visual exam unless you just have a very stoic patient. So it is really important to have enough help from your technicians to hold the head. And we generally want to make sure we have a hand around the muzzle and behind the back of the head to stop forward and backward motion and left to right motion, because if we can keep them sort of still, it'll be less discomfort to them while we're going down into the canal to see what's going on. Absolutely. And I think that's a big consideration to keep in mind is just the discomfort of this exam, because, you know, even if they'll, you're talking about the stiff cone, absolutely. Even if they'll let you put that cone in there initially, if they then shake their head and it hurts, well, you might be done for the day. Yeah. And they'll cry out when we take samples or when we look in there and it's very distressing to the owners. And usually then the owners are very hesitant about doing future exams or taking future samples, which is really important and crucial to follow-up care. So anything we can do to mitigate that would be really helpful. And again, I definitely have patients where we just cannot perform those exams without sedation or pain control or without decreasing the disease process that's happening in the ear, potentially with steroids to take swelling away. And then at follow-up exams, we can get a much better look and much better samples. It is so amazing. I've seen that, you know, many times where you just, you can't get anywhere near that ear and then you control the pain and control the inflammation. And all of a sudden the pet is like, oh yeah, that's no problem. Go for it. And just the night and day contrast, I can only imagine how painful that's got to be for them. Yeah. It makes a really big difference. So I'm sure you get phone calls from general practitioners like me saying, hey, I've got these ears. They're really, really difficult to manage. You know, based on your experience talking to, you know, dermatologists, general practitioners, residents alike, what are some considerations that you wish every veterinarian knew about collecting and utilizing a cytology sample? So one thing I would say is, is I would do with every case that comes in. And it should be repeated with every follow-up visit. And the reason that's really important for a takeaway is when you do your first evaluation, visual and cytologic, and you determine what topical would be appropriate, 
many times owners will perceive that it gets a lot better, but down in the canal, there's still things happening. So we always emphasize to owners the importance of the follow-up exam, where we tell them we are going to be repeating a visual exam and a cytologic exam so we can evaluate, is this treatment working? Did the infectious organism population within the canal shift in some way? Do we need to change the treatment? Now, this will be different depending on if it's your first time basic ear infection, or this is the relapse of a chronically infected ear. Those ears are going to need a lot of different treatment. But for the most part, I wouldn't necessarily just send home medicine and hope that it gets better. I think I would encourage them always to do a follow-up, always do a cytology, and always do a visual exam because the cytology tells me, did my treatment work and should I adjust it? And the other thing that the visual exam is really important for, including just like also palpating the canal from the outside to assess pain, but also are there perpetuating problems other than the infection? So there are dogs that are just really difficult to do a visual exam on, and you might swab those ears and cytologically, there's no infection there. But if you looked in the canal, you would see redness, you might see hyperplasia of the tissue, and that tells you there's still edema and swelling and potentially excessive exudate that's happening in that canal. That doesn't equate to an infection, but that tells us that ear canal is still not normal and needs continued support and care. So for ears, I think it's important to be vigilant with them very much like how you would be vigilant with an eye with an ulcer. It needs continued drops. It needs continued rechecks. The ear is a very interesting organ and it plays by its own rules. And we just need to make sure that we stay on top of it and manage it the best we can. Absolutely. And you touched on this next question a little bit as far as cultures go. And you know, that we really don't use the culture results to select our topical Is there ever an indication to culture an external ear canal? Sometimes when I would utilize a culture is if I, the ear canal is completely erosive. So there's no epithelium lining that ear canal. These are often very painful. I do think that that is a situation where you would want to take a culture and to determine a potential oral antibiotic option because there is no epithelium. We are treating the tissue of the ear canal versus inside the canal itself. So I think that that is, those are the situations where myself and many of my close colleagues do utilize cultures of the external ear canal to select therapy. And again, primarily we are looking for an oral antibiotic. It can help with kind of your plan for topical therapy. Obviously, if a culture comes back and shows you know, highly resistant to a fluoroquinolone, but maybe amicacin would be fine. You know, well, it's even susceptible at an oral level. So topically that would be fine too. But typically we reserve cultures for middle ear infections or external ear infections if it's completely erosive. And in those cases, oral antibiotics would be indicated. And you're talking about the erosive ear canal because we've kind of broken down that skin barrier. So we worry a lot more about like bacterial translocation and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. These guys look really red, very painful. It almost has like a look of granulation tissue. There just isn't any intact epithelium that we can see at that point. You know, I feel like I've certainly seen really ulcerated ear canals, but is part of what you're talking about kind of those cobblestone ear canals? 
So cobblestoning is a term that we utilize to talk about hyperplasia. So when the skin gets thicker than it normally should be, it has that cobblestone effect. And we see that on all areas of the skin. So ear pinna often will get that cobblestoning or hyperplasia associated with allergic reaction and even secondary infections. And we see that on like skin between the toes and other areas on the body as well. So you definitely can see that down the ear canal because the skin of the ear canal just kind of like the rest of the body. So that means you have a thickening of the epithelium, not an erosion of the epithelium, but that is a perpetuating issue of the ear canal. If you see thickening of the skin, that tells you there's still a disease process happening. Even if there's no infection, you still have the primary inflammatory issue, whatever that is that triggered the ear issue in the first place. And so you still need to consider treatments. Primarily that would indicate steroids topically for sure, and probably orally as well to help shrink that tissue back down to a normal level. Those are always fun ones with the oral steroids too. And they come <laughs> yeah. back and you check them and you're like, oh my gosh, look at this nice, happy ear canal. Maybe not in two weeks, maybe in a little bit longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> steroids are, are magic medications for ear canals. I can't think of really a instance where we don't utilize them orally topically or both to treat ears. And we just don't want to be scared of using them in those cases. They will turn a corner for many dogs with ear disease. And, you know, just you, I'm sure you see many, many more ears than I do, but I can think of, I became a believer when I started using oral steroids on just a really, really tough one. And I had fought with this ear infection. I'd fought with this eardrum trying to get everything to kind of go back to normal. And we started steroids and it was just magical, like you said. Yeah. And one of the big things that we fight with ears is the swelling that occurs in most dogs. And it's a tiny tube. And once the swelling occurs, nothing's getting out and nothing's going in. And a lot of pain comes from that. And that's why I think sometimes those really painful ears, you know, a good knee jerk reaction is we're going to give this dog some NSAIDs because that will help with inflammation and pain relief, but it really doesn't help with the swelling. And so I think we want to shift our thinking about that. Just like with the experience you had that can turn a corner and it, it does help a lot with the pain response that they're having, not truly pain control, but it takes away the triggers that are leading to the pain. So we're sort of getting to the bottom of that after, after starting those therapies. And then what we try to do is a continuation of, of the topical steroids to move away from the oral. Once we sort of get everything started down the right pathway. I love what you said about, um, <laughs> you know, those being kind of the magical medication, both topically and orally, because I never really thought about it that way, but you're absolutely Absolutely right. Like those seem to be the cornerstone of, you know, what we're doing here and everybody wins, you know, we get it, we resolve the infection and the pet feels a whole heck of a lot better. And the owner is much happier, which is always what we're going for. And they will be believers if you just get their pet to feel better and yeah. sleep through the night. And then you can sort of cross the next bridge that you come to with how do you handle the next problem associated with those years? You know, maybe we got the swelling and pain better, the infections better. And how do we continue that down that progress road? Well, I feel like I kind of went down the, the steroid rabbit hole there for a minute, but thank you <laughs> for, for going with me there. <laughs> That's all right. It's a great question. A lot of people, a lot of primary care vets that I speak with have similar questions. So I think it's good to include. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, you know, kind of going back to these ear cytologies, what are we looking for on an ear cytology? I mean, I go to bacteria and yeast, you know, I've seen large amounts of neutrophils sometimes on these cytologies, but are there other structures that we should really be on the lookout for with these guys? 
there are sometimes things that you can pick up on that might be helpful. So obviously bacteria and what type, are you looking at cocci or rods or both? And then yeast organisms, those are always really helpful. And inflammatory cells are really good to look for too. Typically you're looking at neutrophils. Occasionally you might see some eosinophils in there, but the other types of cells that we can pick up on cytology that might be important, you see them in Ear cytology sometimes on skin cytology as well would be like acantholytic cells. So these are a type of a skin cell that occurs when you have autoimmune disease. Typically we see with pemphigus foliaceus. So these skin cells have lost their connection with their neighboring skin cells. So there's a process called acantholysis that occurs due to the, the disease process. And they basically float away from their skin cell friends off into the praline exudate. And they look like these kind of round, very purple fried egg looking cells. So if you see something like that, that can be an indication that something beyond a normal infection is occurring. Or if you see them, you just may not know what you're looking at. And it would be good to be aware that that happens. You can get acantholytic cells with massive inflammation, infection, and even things like a ringworm infection in low numbers. But if they're in high numbers, then you could see those from your cytology samples. So for example, I had a dog who came to me with a severely painful unilateral ear problem. And we did have to sedate her in order to even get a look in there. Her, the skin of her ear canal appeared very erosive. And on cytology, we saw no bacteria anywhere of any kind or yeast, even though she had a lot of perlent exudate. So just visually, I would have expected that I would see sheets of rods or cocci coming out of that ear canal but we were able to see a number of those acantholytic cells along with neutrophils. And our suspicion was she had had a drug eruption in that ear and basically had an immune type reaction associated with some topical therapies that had been used. But just visually, when I looked, had I never done a cytology, I would have said this clearly has to be infectious. And in fact, they had had an infection, had been treated and the ear got worse. So the assumption was the ear medication had not treated the infection when in fact it had, but then led to a follow-up problem. Other than that, you can occasionally find demodex mites from ear swabs. Usually we associate those with skin scrapings, but demodex can live everywhere. And so you can pick those up occasionally. And then obviously just ear mites and things too, if you're looking for them. Those are sort of the big things. I do think it's important to note inflammation and inflammatory cells. So you can see those even if there is no infection. And that's a clear indication there's an inflammatory process happening, which again, probably needs steroids or something else to help it with it, but probably doesn't need more antibiotics or antifungals per se. Thank you so much for describing those acantholytic cells. I was hoping you were going to talk about those. I had a colleague, actually, he suspects pemphigus in, in a patient. And he said, you know, I, I suspect this and I, I did a skin cytology and it's also suspicious. And I said, oh yeah, were there acantholytic cells? He said, yeah, there were. I said, great. What do they look like? <laughs> there are some really lovely images of them out there. And when I train my technicians how to read these cytologies, those cells are easily appreciated on like a lower power, sort of like 10X, where you can see them mixed in with the other inflammatory cells. So you can see at 10X what the inflammatory cells are, that it's a neutrophil, but those cells are so big, they are typically bigger than inflammatory cells. So if you're just scanning around on 100X for bacteria and yeast, you know, they'll be part of your slide, but you may not be able to appreciate them sort of in the larger field. So, so 
if you flip down to a lower power, kind of get a bigger picture about what's happening, you can see them polka dotted between the inflammatory cells. And it's much easier to appreciate them at that level. When you start looking and you're like, oh, there's no infection. What else is happening here? Sometimes it's helpful to go to a lower power to look around as well. Thank you. Excellent advice <laughs> as far as finding these other things that we might be looking for. And I have to say, as far as the Demodex mites go, I don't think I've ever found one on an ear cytology. I have on a fecal though. Yeah. Yes. Cause the, they do survive the GI tract. And actually that's an excellent way to find Demodex in cats. That was what it was. It was a cat. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Cause they're fastidious groomers. And so they will lick them off and it's very difficult to find them on their just skin scrapes. I think I've only ever found Demodex once from an ear canal and I was very excited. I had to take pictures and tell everybody, Oh yeah. but, um, but yeah, I mean, they're part of sort of the normal part of skin. And so you can pick them up, especially if they have a very bad Demodex infection. And typically when you would pick those up from the ear canal is they have probably ruptured out of hair follicles into like pustular like reactions. And then they can kind of drain into that inside the ear canal skin because we will pick them up in really bad infections when they get pustules on their skin and we're taking impressions. They'll sort of be amongst all of the debris that we get versus needing a true skin scrape for it. So it just depends what's happening on the skin. And if we were to see something like that, a demodex mite on cytology, is that something absent other clinical signs of demodex being a problem in this patient? Should we, is that something where we should really want to treat for demodex or is that more of just an incidental finding? It might be just an incidental finding. In a study I participated in where we were taking samples from normal pets, we did get a couple where off of completely normal pets, we found a demodex mite on scrapes. We were just part of the study that we did. So we do know you can find them. So I would say if you happen upon them, be it skin or ears, and that dog really doesn't have issues. I mean, presumably you're taking a skin scrape because there is a lesion, but if you find it, I would treat it in lieu of the clinical signs that you see, right? So if the major issues in the ear are other types of infection and you pick up on that, it could just be hanging out because it kind of got loose and what's happening there. If you see many of them, or if that's one of the only things that you pick up on and the dog is having some skin changes, it would be appropriate to treat it. Nowadays, some very good flea controls will treat ear Mites, skin mites of all kinds. And those are our isoxazolines. So the good news is we don't have to put them on large regimens of say ivermectin anymore. We can just say here, take a Brevecto, take a Semperica, and you're going to cover fleas as well as treat any potential Demodex problem. Absolutely. I remember the days of ivermectin. Oh, no, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, and I, I guess I have one more question when, while we're talking about Demodex, because I never really thought about that on an ear cytology, but we talked about steroids being the magical drug in the ear canal. So if we find a Demodex mite absent other clinical signs, we, we shouldn't be afraid to put steroids in that ear. Probably not. And I would say, like I said, I can't, count the number of years I've looked in or sampled in my years of being a dermatologist at this point. And I've had it once where I've seen one, I would say if I saw one and I was worried that that was a substantial problem, I'd probably treat for it first and try to avoid the steroids if I could, just because that's our general recommendation when managing demodex mites. I think if that problem ever arises, you should call and let me know so we can chat about the case. Cause that sounds very interesting. I think the basic recommendation is potentially avoid steroids. I think if you see one and there's nothing else going on, you don't necessarily have to worry about it. 
And if you gave steroids and it got worse, then you would know that that was a problem. You'd have your um, answer. But, <laughs> <laughs> but for a lot of cases, we, like I said, nowadays, if we happen to see Demodex mites, even just all over the body, right, which is how we normally see it, we treat those guys with with the isoxazolines. And up until now, knock on wood, I have not had one not respond to that. And then after treating those cases, because many that I see are also allergic and the demodex are probably a secondary issue to the allergies, we do have to reach for steroids and other medications. In the past, we would say, don't do steroids ever in that dog's life because it could cause a problem. And now I think we are reaching for those when absolutely necessary for quality of life, because we know those isoxazolines are going to control their mites. And I, when I've had to do that, haven't seen cases relapse with their mites, as long as they're pretty steady on that flea control. So, you know, I think we have a little bit of flexibility now with treating some of these guys. I'm not aware of any studies or anything that have been done in this regard. I just don't think we see it enough to look at that, but ultimately what always matters is the pet's quality of life. So sometimes you have to make choices of maybe this isn't the best treatment scenario, but I know it will make things better. So we should try this and see what happens. And I think that's always a good use of our educated guesses. I'm loving this this episode here. Cause there I went down another rabbit hole of, um, and it's ear cytologies, right? It's something we do in yeah. practice every day. It seems like something we would, you know, have kind of down pat. And I have so many questions as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think these are all excellent questions. I was thinking about something about what we look for on our cytologies, which was the question that you kind of took us down this rabbit hole. But I think one thing I wanted to point out was it is normal in normal ears to see bacteria and yeast. Some dogs have populations of those cells. So it, that doesn't automatically mean that there's a problem in that ear. So like we will see ear canals that visually look pretty good. They're not that red. They're not a problem, but we might see a little extra wax in there. So some dogs and cats are just extra wax producers, but it is appropriate to take samples just to make sure they're not stoic and not telling their owners there's a problem. And you might see a few bacteria and you might see a few yeasts, but if you ever see inflammatory cells, that's an obvious indication of an, of an issue, inflammatory issue or a disease process process that's happening. That means that the bacteria or yeast you see is triggering a pathologic problem. Or if you don't see organisms, but see inflammatory cells, there is an inflammatory process that's happening. And probably we should institute some form of treatment, but take, for example, our hound dogs, they like to have extra wax. They like to have 20 yeast per high power field. Their ear canals are not red. They're not shaking their heads. They're not rubbing their ears. In those cases, I don't necessarily treat those dogs. And again, a low amount of bacteria in the ear can be normal for some pets. So we always want to only treat in light of clinical signs and what the ear canal looks like. But typically if we see inflammatory cells, we're assuming that's a process we need to manage. So it's kind of like interpreting blood work that, you know, you treat the, the patient, not the numbers. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Well, let's talk about when we send them to you, when we make that referral. So what factors generally necessitate a referral? You know, basically when should we admit defeat and call in a specialist? 
I think these are great questions. And that is one of the number one questions all of my primary care vets that I help ask me, is it appropriate to send it? When should we send it? And first of all, I'll say you're never admitting defeat with these cases. I think that there are many factors that go into why some are successful and why some aren't. And I think most treatment protocols are going to be very appropriate. But ultimately for me, it's never wrong to refer it. I'm perfectly fine if you refer it with the first case or the first suspicion of allergy, which typically drives years because most of those cases have lifelong problems. And the earlier that we can manage that dog's ear disease and manage the underlying problem through its life, the better the overall outcome will be. So if, especially if you start to pick up on a pattern with um, it happens multiple times a year, or I've treated it and it's not turning a corner for some reason. It doesn't mean what you're doing isn't right. It just means that it probably needs a little more of an advanced aggressive step to get it going down the right pathway. And what I would say is if you have some kind of puppy ear flares or first time ear infections, you, you don't have to feel like you have to send them Certainly, we are happy to manage those at any point, but I feel like if you are treating them with good commercial-based products, you are doing the good follow-up if the owners will let you do that, and you are monitoring for response and things aren't going, and your thought is, should I be mixing special eardrops? I think that if you're having to move beyond commercial-based products to the point where you feel like this might need more special eardrops, I think that's an excellent sort of line in the sand where if you cross it, that's a good referral point if you're not sure when else to do it. But a big part about managing the ears is managing the primary triggers that lead to the secondary infections that require the cytologies that we're talking about. And for many times, what we tell owners is not that different than what you guys talk to them about. It's just we spend about 50 minutes discussing it with them, talking about the current problem, talking about the lifelong problem and setting them up for a pathway. And we as dermatologists definitely appreciate that that's practically impossible in a primary care setting. And so also it's helpful for the owners to come to the realization that it is a lifelong problem and that we need to be treating these ears very carefully, very aggressively, very early so that later down the life, they don't end up at the surgeon for a TICA, right? And this isn't true of all of them, but when you're looking at when do I refer, I encourage everybody to reach out to your local dermatologist, talk to them early about those cases, let them help you guide them through that process. But as just a basic what's a good one-time thing that I think about when I should be done with the case. I definitely feel like if you've utilized good commercial products and those aren't doing it, and along with the other steps you're taking, I would push those owner, owners towards referral. Not like, I think you should go to the dermatologist. I think I would verbalize it as this is your next step to make sure your dog gets managed throughout its life. Cause those are the types of cases. It's not a one-time ear infection, right? That, that it's probably something that's going to be perpetual for them. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense. And sometimes we can plant the seed in general practice and say, this is going to be a lifelong thing. There's underlying allergies, but like you said, you know, we're limited on time, limited on, on resources and techniques sometimes. So sometimes hearing it from a specialist, hearing it a second time and from someone who is specialized in dermatology can, you know, just be that teamwork to really get the best treatment for that patient. 
I, I think all everybody together working in that dog's best interest is what ends up being really, really helpful. You are going to have clients who are never going to want to seek specialty care. And that's where, you know, we are happy to do those consults and see what we can do to help. I will tell you that sometimes even with our just like best efforts of trying to help with consulting with our primary care vets, those ear cases we can tell are just incredibly difficult. I will say that what appears to be a stumbling block for some owners is finances. And when we look at where they're sort of like, what is my financial cutoff? A lot of times the kind of initial walk through the door visit is a little expensive, but then follow-up visits don't end up differentiating cost-wise that much from where they were in a primary care setting. And so some owners, I think, have this image of, of like how much the specialist will be and that it's every time. And I think sometimes just giving them a cost breakdown, and especially if they know it's, you know, not seeing both vets at the same time, that can be very helpful to them as well. But these, these are difficult hurdles to get some owners to go past in order to, to get them to sort of the next place. And we appreciate that. We know some clients won't refer in spite of your best efforts. And many times when I look through uh, notes, when I get cases, a lot of what I want to tell the client has been verbalized to them before. And it is just hearing it a second time or hearing it in a different manner that sometimes gets them to the place we want them to be. Yeah, I'm thinking in, in terms of the cost breakdown, I know I have occasionally had the conversation where exactly like you said, the, the hurdle was, oh, I'm just afraid that going to a specialist is going to be so expensive and I'm not going to be able to afford it and keep up with it. And, you know, I kind of went, yeah, but you're in here once a month for an ear infection. Yeah. Like that's pretty expensive <laughs> to manage. So if we can cut those down. Exactly. And in one case where it is like from my point, when I refer cases, for instance, so let's say I have an, a just in stage year, I have to refer that to a surgeon and many owners immediately balk at the idea. And I will have to ask them, what are your roadblocks? And one is finances. That's one we can't get past. Another one is just like concern that my pet is going to be deaf. And we talk about how, you know, the quality of life of your pet that it currently has is never going to change. It's uncomfortable. And if we can get past the financial hurdle and I can say, listen, you should just have the consult. You should just talk to the surgeon. It doesn't mean that you're telling them you're going to do the surgery, but also then the surgeon can give them their experience. And then because they're even more experienced in the outcome of those surgeries than I am, it gives the owner a better perspective. So I am sometimes a referring vet as well and send my cases on when there just is no longer a medical help. And some owners won't tell us why they don't want to go places either. But if you can gently push them to that sometimes, then we can help them pass that to get those pets in the best place possible. So we definitely from sort of different aspects deal with that. And I see it on my end as well and appreciate that sometimes they just, they just can't be helped in the right direction. I do like uh, the idea that you put out there though, about just straight up asking them what, what are the roadblocks? What are the reasons that you don't want to go? And I would say probably less than 10%. Like, let's say we're specifically talking about the Tika situation, less than 10% is at finances. Most of those owners will find a way if they can. The greater majority is they're concerned about follow-up care and really that their pet will be deaf Although what they don't realize is at the their point, their pet's probably deaf. mostly yeah. deaf. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think once we help them to see like, mm, and I've never had an owner come back and regret that 
going down. They're like, oh my gosh, he's a puppy again. He feels so great. They're so glad they did it. And so I can use those experiences to help guide owners down that pathway. And obviously, you know, dermatologists are not surgeons. We can't always medically manage things. Not every owner leaves ecstatic and we're not a quick fix either. So for many of our cases, they don't see the beneficial outcome of the long-term plan until they're one to two years. And if we're talking about managing allergies that cause ear disease, but we have had many pets go on and move away from oral steroids and move away from repetitive topical solutions because we manage the underlying allergy and the owner will come and be like, he hasn't had an ear infection in a year. And that's been the first time in their life. And so, you know, our help that we bring to our patients is more of a long-term commitment, but it is, it is appreciated. And we do see that with them. And that's the harder to thing for owners for referral is we can't guarantee them a quick fix or, and we definitely can't guarantee them a cure for most of the cases that we treat. But once we can kind of move them past the hope for a cure and an immediate fix and help them understand the process. Once they understand the process and the prognosis, they're way more open to accepting all of the steps that we move them through. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Bauer, this has been fantastic. I mean, like I said, it just, our, our call when we talked about the podcast and then, you know, here we are recording. I can't believe how many questions I have about ear cytology. So hopefully all of our listeners out there got a lot of their questions answered as well. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with us? Um, I mean, ultimately the biggest encouragement that I have is to do your cytologies and do them often. And if you need help with reading them, then please reach out. I know I have veterinarians that I work with in my area. We have done in hospital teachings as well. And really practice makes perfect. So don't be afraid to, to do them and then learn from them. And I think that it is just an instrumental tool in managing these ear cases. And if you're not doing them, um, try them because, and they're an inexpensive way to get good information too. So that's always very helpful. But I think that that pretty much sums it up. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for joining me. This has been great. Well, thank you so much. It was very fun. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode and got all of your ear cytology questions answered. I want to say a big thank you to Dr. Bauer for joining us and thank you to Decra for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to find out more about this and other podcasts, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.